BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Look, there are a lot of problems facing our society right now. And yet, sometimes when we have an idea or we just want to make things better, there's all kinds of roadblocks we have to overcome. I mean, just recently, taking a portion of San Francisco's famous Golden Gate Park and making it car-free became a massive issue, with lobbyists on both sides spending a ton of money trying to convince the Board of Supervisors to go in their direction. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. And yet it was fraught with controversy and red tape. And when climate change is causing all kinds of havoc, species are going extinct at an unbelievable rate. I can imagine how frustrating it must be to be the person on the ground who just wants to make a difference, and yet feeling like your hands are tied behind your back. Well, sometimes, maybe... It helps to take matters into your own hands. And that's exactly what Derek Gao does. Derek Gao is a UK-based reintroduction expert. He's a longtime farmer, and he's written a number of books, including Bringing Back the Beaver, and most recently, Birds, Beasts, and Bedlam. Essentially, it describes how he's turning his land into a lost ark for species that are threatened by extinction. He owns a fair amount of land in Lifton and Devon in in the UK. And for a long time, he farmed it and he had a lot of animals. And just recently, he's decided to give it back to nature, rewilding, as he calls it. He set up captive breeding facilities to bring back species that seem to be lost to the UK or in danger of extinction. He's not one to ask the committee for permission. Derek Gow, well, he just gets it done. Derek Gao, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, nice to meet you. So I want to start out with asking you about some of your, you know, early ambitions. You you wrote that in your in your baby book, your your parents had listed your preferred uh, profession as being a zookeeper. So tell us about sort of how that interest began. 
Well, I mean, it's it's never easy to define these things. I used to have a massive collection of toy Britons animals, and you would have elephants whose tusks slid in and out in, in, in plastic from the sides of their, their head and giraffes whose necks bent back up and all that sort of stuff. I re- I've always been fascinated by animals. I mean, the earliest life experience I can remember is of being in a, a stream with my brother, I think perhaps near Cooper Angus, you know, near Dundee, and a pair of water voles falling down the bank, fighting towards us, and of us then racing back to our dad's caravanette, alarmed and crying, and um, thinking it was all quite shocking. So I've been involved with farm animals for very many years when I was small. Um, my uncle had a small farm in the um, in the Scottish Borders near Eaglesfield. And then when I was a bit older, I got jobs help. I, got, I had part-time weekend jobs helping either in cattle markets or in sheep farms in the landscape around us. But when it came to wild animals, you know, I would have bits to, to do with collecting fish and insects. I think we once had a black-headed gull that broke its wing, uh, and that was brought to me, but I'm afraid it didn't last long. So there was some element of caring for them, but also an element of going out into a landscape that was much fuller of life than it is today, you know, where there were, for example, complexes of old abandoned glass houses on the edge of the village where we lived in the Scottish borders that were just full of partridges and weasels and bandied snails and, and all manner of things in great profusion that are no longer there now. And then later on, I mean, I became involved in, in keeping breeds of rare breed domestic livestock, old things like the Zoe sheep on St Kilda and various other kinds of, 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 of unusual um, heritage type animal. And eventually um, through that, I came back to, to work in zoos. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, that description that you make about how there was, you know, even it's not like these wild animals were living in these big fields. I mean, you talk about them as the ru- in the ruins of these old buildings and old structures or all of these animals, you know, that that seems surprising to me that that's sort of, you know, you I kind of just in my, my head imagine this like, you know, idyllic field or, or wild space. And that's where and because that's no longer there, those animals aren't there. But that doesn't seem to be your experience. So can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, why you think that or why it is that the animals are there? Yeah, it's very simple because the rest of the landscape's farmed. And in the farmed land, okay, there are, for example, you know, when I was little, there were, you know, birds like lapwings and curlews. Where the, you know, there were so many that I think I said in my book. I mean, their calls were indivisible from the air, and that was true. I mean, these birds were nothing was thought of them. If people could be bothered, they collected their eggs, but they were everywhere. And these were birds of a landscape that was farmed, but not efficiently. So you had a lot of wetland. You you couldn't perhaps keep the numbers of animals that you can keep nowadays because you didn't have the the, the more advanced worming medicines for sheep um, or cattle. So the livestock, the, the capacity for livestock to run on the land was lower. It was at the beginning of the 70s when, when the common agricultural policy was just kicking in. Um, and before the real big grants got going for farmers to, to drain and reclaim all the wetlands and and, and and take out the areas of scrub that had reformed. So there was life in the landscape when I was little, but surely and steadily as agriculture improved, that life left. And by the time you look at the old glass houses or you know some of the modern sites you look at now, perhaps old quarry workings or old um, 
you know, Second World War um, refineries on the Thames, the reason why wildlife is there is because it's been nowhere near farming. And even though the, the, the areas may have had a past industrial use, which sometimes was ruinous, you have to bear in mind that as time goes on, you know, for things like, I don't know, the iron ore industry or whatever else, the forests that would all be cut down on the banks of the River Tamar and Devon, um, you know, or, or the, the hammer ponds that would fuel, yeah, again, manufacturing in the chestnut coppice in Ken are all things that have gone in time. And these things, you know, would finish as a function 250 years ago, forests have regrown and wild animals have returned. But in the farmed landscape, you're now looking at an environment that's approaching near death where things like the waders of the past, the great skirling, um flocks of lapwings and curlews have all gone. So the reason why wildlife has survived in these areas is because of that. And the reason why wildlife in Britain is, you know, really, frankly, a very scant resource is because we are an island nation with no links to a bigger continent. And because we as a people have dominated it so long, you know, since, you know, the wild cattle went in the Iron Age, the moose not long after that, bears probably, you know, maybe... 5th, 6th century, links, maybe early Middle Ages. The wolves survived the longest, but we got that in the end. And now we're at a point in time where with all the big animals gone, apart from the ones we wanted to hunt, and formal regalia with comedy red coats on and silly black hats, the others are, you know, we're now, we've now created an environment that's so hostile that even the small animals can't survive. You know, the voles and the mice and, and now the invertebrates and the insects. and you know, actually, you don't really need to wonder where it's going to end. It's going to end us, you know, with us alone and bereft in a dying and decaying planet, with everything else having gone, you know, at, at, at the whim of our destruction or, or or lack of care. And in the end, it will be the end of us too. And and we're beginning to see that now. One of the things that um once struck me when I uh when I, I was in Britain, so when I was in college, I I paid my tuition by spending the summers directing tours. And uh, a couple of the tours I did were England and Wales and Devon and Cornwall. And I just remember being so in awe of the fact that when you drive through farmland or the countryside, everything seems so perfectly manicured. Like all the hedgerows are perfect. Everything just looks like gorgeous and green <laughs> as opposed to like driving through the US and there's like big highways and, you know, there's like trash along the side of the road. And so it just struck me that there is this real kind of appreciation and love for the greenery. And so reading your book really surprised me at sort of the the state of, I mean, it's not any better in the U.S., I'm sure, except that the U.S. is a much bigger piece of land. But I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of like this, on the one hand, this almost, you know, I don't know if it's a, a British or English or I, I don't, you know, and, you know, just like this reverence for, you know, making the countryside beautiful, but how in, in some ways that's kind of killing the the, the natural wildlife. Oh, no, it's completely killed the natural wildlife. I mean, there are no two ways about that. I can't remember who it was that coined the phrase that Britain is a nation of gardeners. And we've extended the garden long ago, you know, well beyond our, our own tiny plots where the Brussels sprouts are in neat lines and, and the beans adhere to poles. And maybe you put a bird bath in to amuse yourselves with the antics of a sparrow. But at the end of it all, anything that threatens your crop or, or the life of a, of a flowering plant 
is beaten into the earth. Now we, we, we've, we've extended that completely to the whole island. And if, it, if it's not, you know, as you say, you and a bus driving through Devon and Cornwall and looking at all the neat fields of sheep, um, it's you and a bus going to the highlands and, and looking at all the heather where the forests used to be. And, and if you can, on a very high mountain somewhere far away, looking at one, you know, a small herd of red deer that are part of a rich man's playground. It's, it's, it's a grotesque parody. And I mean, I've traveled not extensively, but widely in the United States. And yes, you guys have problems there. Of course, there are problems there. When you sit down with a in a room full of biologists, they'll tell you how terrible it all is, and this is not working, and that's not working. But you're still dealing with a landscape that operates on a grand scale, where you have great pageants like the elephant seals, you know, coming to beaches in California, a species that was nearly extinct, where the big bulls, you know, weigh well over a ton. You know, to 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 rut and to carve. You know, I just, I mean, the, the United States is an inspiring country. You know, you go to your excellencies of national parks, which have had terrible times under the Trump Trump administration, but before that, were always really pretty much politically looked upon by whosoever was in power as a national asset. They truly are. You know, the bighorn sheep in the deserts, the walrus in Alaska. You're looking at a landscape which. Although it has issues and although it has its own psychoses, you know, when it comes to something like the wolf, still has creatures living that, that left this land a very long time ago. I take very little pleasure from traveling through British landscapes. I'm just done with looking uh, at moors flayed to the very limits of their existence, where the gorse is burnt, where the trees are taken out, where sure there are a few small birds. But those small birds are getting lower and lower in number every year. And one day, the lovely things at the bobbing white arse of the wheat ears won't bob across these fields anymore. They'll all be gone too. So what we're looking at is, is one grand goodbye to much of what we've known uh, without realising at all just exactly the richness of what we had in the past. And I don't think we can see it at all now as a physical example until we go to far northeastern Europe or Siberia or, 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 or the states of Canada. There you get some sort of vision of what an ecosystem might look like, whereas here, here it is just a jumble of, of schizophrenic nonsense. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of um, the role that zoos play in here, because, and, I, and especially of the one of the um, early kind of I don't know if you call it an exhibit or idea that you were a part of the Nature Quest, you know, sort of this creation that that you were a part of that was built in order to display these tiny animals, like the dormice and and these these little tiny tiny things. And so, can you just just tell us a little bit about sort of and you know your your book is so funny when it comes to the zoo section describing all the characters that that <laughs> live in the zoos or that not that, that sorry work in the zoos not the animals the, the, human, the human characters that lived in the zoos the yeah they were a pretty, pretty eclectic law i mean nowadays in a world that's infinitely more sober when every institution that is likes to portray itself as sane and worthy well 25 years ago the zoos didn't do that they were full of of people who dance naked on the back of elephants or run brothels in Thailand or run guns to, to people at Idi Amin. They were left, right and centre. Uh, I mean, they were incredibly colourful characters, but you probably wouldn't want to turn your back on them for very long in the dark because if they thought they could make anything from you, then that would have been it. So 
I mean, see now, I mean, I bet they were colourful. They were not bland people. And sometimes when you look at them, they had incredible empathy with the animals they worked with. More commonly, probably not. And nowadays, zoos are things that take themselves very, very seriously. They have captive breeding programs for a whole range of different threatened and endangered species. And it all seems terribly august and terribly worthwhile. And there are some that have done some incredibly good jobs. But the point I make in the book is that much of this depends on the individuals, as it always does in life. You know, it depends on what people are going to do rather than what institutions are going to do. What institutions are going to do in the end is be hauled along by progress which supersedes their own tediously and pitifully slow ability to change anything at all, if indeed they have it, and, and, and to respond in the end to that. What people do is people change everything. It's inspirational individuals, people who care very, very deeply and who feel very, very moved by a subject that make a difference. The difficulty is, of course, that when you begin, you don't know what difference you're going to make. And when you're halfway through your journey, you might know or not know what impact it's had. But it's better to try and do something than it is to sit in your butt for the rest of the short existence, you know, time-wise you have on this planet, and wail about its woes and inadequacies and make no effort at all to change it. So zoos can be great institutions. I mean, Gerald Durrell, who was the most remarkable man, showed that, you know, you could... Even if it didn't work, you could, you know, they could have a purpose. You could look at obscure creatures that were under terrible pressure. So most of my life, I've worked with water bowls. And water bowls, you know, a relatively small animal. It's, it's ratty from wind in the willows, sculling up and down the river Windrush with his pal the mole and, and the toad and a, and, a, and a little Oxford punt. And when he's finished at the end of the day and he's fought the battle of Toad Hall with the, the weasels and stoats, which you know he's going to win because he's a Biggles-type character who's the best of British and they're always going to come out on top in the end. He just retires to the pub to drink a, a pint of warm, mild bitter with his pals. And... and <laughs> You know, that's the kind of animal that, that Kenneth Graham picked for his character because it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Everybody knew what it was. It wasn't an unfamiliar creature. And in my lifetime, they've, they've you know, they suffered a decline of 97%. They then suffered another decline from 97% collapse to Christ knows where they are now, but it's pretty grim. And we've bred about 30,000 of them over the years and reintroduced them. And some of the populations have survived and some of the populations haven't survived. But we've learned a lot through, through you know, pursuing this course of action. And, and we know that there are much, much tougher animals now than we ever thought possible to begin with. And that restoration, you know, if the circumstances are right, is possible. But it's, it's not what we knew at the beginning. Um, and therefore, as I say, you know, captive breeding, great. You know, it could be a great tool. It does not solve everything as... as you know, some of the wonderful projects in the United States with species like the black-footed ferret and the, uh, the red wolf demonstrate quite aptly. But it can be a very useful tool if you have good, clear-sighted people who are practical um, you know, and who understand and who adapt for the mistakes you know, as, as their leaders. Well, and that's really what I want to get into. A lot of us who just you know, aren't, aren't involved in, in uh, any kind of animal rearing Think of the zoos as the place where the captive breeding happens. They're the place where if we have any chance of preventing extinction, it's going to happen, you know, with the scientists at the zoos or, you know, in these in these programs. And that's that's not your approach anymore. 
And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how, you know, this this journey that you took from initially, you know, making a living as a farmer with livestock to, you know, now basically completely changing what it is that you do, your approach, selling off all the livestock and rewilding. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe we could start with sort of how did you go from working with the zoos and sort of seeing all of this and even, you know, the, the nature questing that I, that I um, mentioned to me was, was, was an interesting exhibit where you show all these little, little animals that, that should be everywhere, but aren't anymore. And to sort of help the public fall in love with them again. And then, you know, you, you sort of started your, you know, you went, went into your own livestock farming. So Okay, so Nature Quest was a kind of a very unusual British zoo. I mean, you know, people say the word zoo, I, I think you still have a kind of stereotypic image in your head of a lot of bars and a polar bear climbing a tree and some gathering of great ants with big frilled black hats poking a bun in its face um, from the end of a stick. That's not the way Nature Quest was. The whole idea was that you were going to build living environments for creatures which were specifically designed for the the behavioural uh, requirements of the tiny creatures they would occupy. So you could, I don't know, build an artificial riverbank so people could see water bowls under underground and underwater. They'd be swimming if they chose to come out into their area, their 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 outdoor areas amongst fish and crayfish and perhaps birds. A whole array of different species that would share a living space. And it was an idea before its time. I mean, you've seen, um, you know, if you go to the um, the Alpen, the, the excellent Alpen Zoo in Innsbruck, you'll see something very similar. If you go to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, you'll see something very similar. So the idea of doing this with wild animals to try and create, if you like, it's almost like a living museum of intelligent information where you have animals, you have plants, you have geology, maybe you have people as well, and you explain you know, how this all came to be is not a new idea. But in Britain, it was pretty unique in its time. It was run by a, a commercial, for want of a better word, entertainment company, who in the end decided it just wasn't for them. It was just too complicated. They wanted to run bingo halls and, and, and waxwork museums and big theme parks. And, and in the end, this fiddly heap of nonsense was not for them. And the thing finished and they pulled the funding and that was the end of it. And I was involved in setting up another similar project over in Kent. But in, increasingly in the time I'd worked there, I decided that I just did not want to work with inert committees and with ego, egotistical um, fools who, who were more worried about you know, the size of vehicle they were driving or the size of budget they had or, or the kind of carpet they had in an office and their own career above and beyond any of the creatures that, that, that they, they, they said they cared for. Um, so I decided to try and do something myself and just something that started small. I moved across to Devon. We bought a small holding here. We did a, a, a lot of work, you know, a number of different projects, but it was very busy. So when the first farm, came up for sale down the road. I bought one farm. And then when my mother died and I was left a bit of a legacy, I bought another farm and we've added some land to that since. But with regard to the land, yes, I farmed it. I mean, I've had a Korean livestock farming before I I moved here. And you look at it and think, well, I'd sooner have my animals than anybody else's because if you have anybody else's animals on it, they they just trash the land and break the fences and everything else. So... We started farming and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you worked harder and harder and harder and harder. All the hours God sent to keep a flock of two and a half thousand sheep alive and 120 cows or whatever else. 
and it was just ruinous. I mean, we just we you, know, you go out in the winter time in an RTV, and the soil would be flowing away from the land. The sheep ate everything. You know, the insecticides we put in the cattle ensured that nothing touched their dung. It was every classic mistake that everybody else had made. And in the end, a number of different things happened. I mean, I, I, I saw probably the last of the, the short-eared owls that we'll ever see here, though maybe one day they'll return as the land reverts and becomes taller grass and scrub. The last of the whimbrel, the last of... of you know, the hen harriers, birds that would all at one point in time have been very, very common here. And with every passing day and moment, you look at these last fading, calling, beautiful, ethereal beings, and you think that what I am doing is not right. And in the end, you come to the conclusion that you've got to stop. But the stopping, as I explain, well, maybe not entirely, causes tremendous pain. The people that, that, that wanted to farm it who worked for me didn't want that to happen, and the last of them will finish employment in three weeks' time. My son disagrees emphatically with what I've done and thinks this is just a whole betrayal of his heritage, and he's too young to have much of a conversation with about why I believe that, that, that what I've done is correct and, and that I, uh, there is no other course open to me. And though there are people who come and look at it and who are enchanted, it's been a challenge. You know, we haven't got stocking rates right yet. We still, even though we've got animals that are a fraction of the number of animals we had here when we were farming them, there's still too many cattle um, and, and too many buffalo and too many mouflon. And, and over the course of the next few months, they'll all be going too until there's virtually nothing left at all. And the land will draw a huge sigh of relief. There will be perhaps two or three wild boar here, perhaps four or five cattle and maybe you know eight or ten horses. And th but those animals will be there to create ecological disturbance, to provide predators with, with their clean blood and dung so that the things that need blood and dung and, and structure in the pasture, so short lawns you know, where birds can feed, are provided with a living space. But we won't be farming anymore. These animals will just be, they'll be, they'll be tools. That's what they're there to do. And then most importantly, in the bottom of the valleys where it's wet, the beavers, which are here in, uh, now in numbers, um, are, are, are working day in, day out to return the medieval hedge banks that the monks took back to drain the land a thousand years ago into one great complicated swamp. And that's what it will be in the end. So it's not been a straightforward process. And we are, uh, we realise very much less than <laughs> in a perfect position we'd wish to be in now, but we're slowly and steadily working our way towards where we want to be. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's just so remarkable what you're doing, especially hearing about even your own son questioning this this decision. I mean, it must take so much just belief in what you're doing as being being the right course of action to to take all of this loss. So let let's talk a little bit about sort of now. So you you came to this conclusion that that the farming that you were doing was hurting the land in terms of you know the the wildlife that could survive there, et cetera. How are you making decisions now? Because I can imagine that, you know, if, if this was, I, it just I, it makes me laugh because it, there there's so many arguments, you know, in the in the U.S. by even between ecologists and biologists about what's the right way to restore an ecosystem, and you you know you can't you can't do this because it's going to cause this species not to survive, and if that species doesn't survive, there's just all this like trickle down effect. I mean, it just all seems, you know, so complicated. And so I wonder if you could sort of walk me through a little bit sort of how you're making these decisions and what ultimately you hope the legacy will be. How am I making decisions? Well, I'm not sitting down with committees to discuss things. <laughs> right. You have no. to look at this whole thing becoming process driven. So the big animals that are left are the things that provide the living space for the little animals. The destruction of the landscape we have wrought is near complete. So when it comes to the little animals, we're going to have to do something to bring them back. And that's going to mean probably nurseries for plants. It's going to mean the restoration of tiny things like frogs, which feed the slightly bigger animals. And in time, probably the restoration of some of the slightly bigger animals, which are going to feed in frogs. But it's going to mean that you look at you with a very open mind at what can be done and what's possible. Uh, what's happened elsewhere, you find good friends, people who are, are also actively committed to the restoration of nature and who are not in particular there to develop themselves. And in combination with that, you don't spend a lot of time attending windy meetings or, or going to seminars where we discuss you know, uh, whether a, a beaver fells a particular kind of tree, it's going to inhibit or, or retard the growth of some ancient lichen. I couldn't give a shit about any of those things. At the end of it all, it's about the reformation of landscapes which are rich for life overall, where there are many ducks, many frogs, many hedgehogs, many snakes, many voles, you know, and, and, and how we grow that. If you start to look at the detail of any of the other things, you just lose yourself in that detail. And before you know where you are, 
you're 75 lying on a, a on a, a deathbed in a hospital with something monitoring your heart, uh, unable to comprehend how you got there. I have no intention of doing that. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, we we have a, um, a little yard and and t- to sort of help us figure out what to do with it. I, I hired this guy named Britt Calloway, who's just wonderful. He's <laughs> and he he does things like he'll bring like an old piece of log and he'll just put it down and he'll say, we just need to put this here so that, you know, that some insects can can grow over here. And like he keeps it wild in that way, which I which I love now. But he doesn't have like a specific, what I like about it is he doesn't have like, well, we need to bring back this particular beetle <laughs> and, you know, and, and focus on that. And that's one of the things I really loved about your approach is that we don't have time <laughs> to plan everything out to the minute detail and committee as you describe. And it seems like in the last couple of years, you've already made such great strides and, Regardless, I'm sure that you get pushback from, you know, people who do this, you know, who who study this for a living. But in the end, you know, I think that that there's also something really dire and wonderful and also like important about just kind of letting the land do what it's going to do and see what we can salvage. Tell me a little bit about sort of now what is the work for you? So like, you know, before you had all these animals, you had to go and make sure they were okay, like you know, in the morning when you get up and you, you go, like, you know, what is it that you do? And then also, like, like how do you think about making a living? <laughs> like, you know. Okay, so, we, so from, from a living point of view, we have a small income. I mean, there's a growing income from tourism. So we have shepherd's huts here. People come to see what we're trying to do. We also do film work for organizations like the BBC. So if, if they want, I don't know, a backlit highland stream built so they could film water voles, in their nests underground, we build the film sets for that. Um, we have run photography courses here. We're going to we run some training courses, and we hope to run more. I also work, and some of my colleagues work in commercial wildlife consultancy, whereby we go and tell guys who are building ports on how to comply with the law and move threatened species from the environments they want to build a port on to other areas where the animals have a prospect of survival. We have you know a variety of different income sources. It's not easy. Um, you know, we've had some great philanthropic donations from people who, who care. And without them, we'd have achieved very little of what we've achieved because they've helped us to do things fast. So for as long as that continues, and of course, we'd like to encourage it, we can we can make more progress than would otherwise be possible. So that's how you make a living. When I get up in the morning, what I do? Well, at the moment, I've, I've just got back from Germany. and We've been leading a field trip over there to look at beaver management in Bavaria. And um, so I'm catching up with all the shit you'd expect to have to catch with when you're up with when you've been somewhere else for for a a week having fun. So it's it's back to invoices, receipts, and making sure that everything is financially in order. And then I'm having two and a half days this week on um, finishing. Well, I'm trying to to work towards finishing another book on the history of the wolf in Britain, which is quite good fun. But you can become very absorbed in that, and if you're not quite sure that you've Done, done all the, the slightly more mundane things that you need to do to give you time to do that, then you can't afford to spend too much time having fun. So it's a combination of different things. I mean, tonight I'm going to go get some desks for the office, which will be fun. And then I am taking my daughter down to get some material to make scrunchies because she wants to make all the scrunchies to sell in our small farm shop um, in, in the season that's forthcoming. So my day is rich and varied. Sometimes it involves animals, mostly it doesn't. But there are a whole team of people here who deal with things like the water voles and wildcats and 
all the other creatures that are here and they're here to deal with them professionally. So I'm just, I'm here trying to make sure it all runs smoothly at the moment. So how can people find you? Let's say they want to go, um, they, they want to come and, and, and be tourists. How do they find you? Come and be tourists, right? If you look at our website, which is Rewilding Coombshead, it, it, it uh, gives you some information about what we're up to. Um, we run uh, wildlife tours through both the, 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 the rewilding area and the animal breeding areas that we have here on the farm. So you can come, you can book a tour, you can go around with Tay, who's our um, ecology specialist and who's recording and documenting the changes in the landscape that are occurring um, as farming withdraws and, 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 and nature returns. And, um, and yeah, there's information there about where we are, you know, the rates for, for shepherds' huts and, and tents, and frankly, the more the merrier. We are a commercial company, but we ain't going to be sort of like becoming a PLC anytime soon, and I'm not going to be driving a Mercedes. So at the end of it all, what we're trying to do is generate the cash we need to make these 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 other other things happen without undue deliberation and the sort of hand-wringing and involvement that comes um, with things that are a wee bit more collaborative. So you've got this rewilding area. Do you do any kind of management of it in terms of like cutting back if, if, if say like a particular crabgrass is taking over too much? Like, do you do that kind of work or are you letting it just go? You know, we, we, we have too many grazing animals at the moment. So the moment what we're doing is cutting down a grazing animal. So we're trying to rehome a whole variety of different creatures so that we have less of an animal impact. Then the next thing we've been doing is dragging trees out into the pasture so that, you know, pastures are things that we have made. When you take your bus trip through Devon and Cornwall and you look over your neat and tidy hedges and you see a checkerboard series of fields, we've made it. It's all one artifice. Before that, the land wasn't flat and the land wasn't dry. There would have been springs and wells. Water would have run over the surface. Water wasn't always pushed to the edge of a field naturally. It's there because we bloody put it there. Um, so we drag trees out into the pastures. We've had um, our next door neighbour knock down a farmyard. So we had something like, I don't know how many tonnes, many, many tonnes, hundreds of tonnes of fractured concrete that came out of the um, the bottom of his farm. And we've run around with tractors and trailers, dumping that out into the pastures as well. We will be doing increasing amounts of planting in the pastures. We will be planting more trees, probably from the beginning of next year onwards, perhaps scraping quite simply the soil back to see we're going to encourage you know, latent and lost plant species like gorse to come again. But we think if we drop the grazing rates of the, and the, of the big animals are here and, and the digging rates of things like the, the, the Iron Age pigs are well bore, um, then, then from that, much in much of the soil disturbance, you will get different forms of vegetation reappearing. So it won't be grass anymore. It will be tall herbs. It will be willow scrub. It will be hawthorn scrub. It will be basically the land reverting to something that is not a neat and tidy checkerboard um, that is gardened by us, but it is a, in a living environment that is, you know, sterile and pointless for most other creatures. And then there's the breeding part. So tell us a little bit about sort of what what you're currently breeding and and sort of what what the approach is there. Okay, so the species that we're breeding from a nature conservation point of view are um, wildcats because we want to reintroduce this species to England. Uh, England is lush and warm. It's a small woodland predator in the deciduous woodlands of southern England on the cliff faces that surround the British Isles where there are many pigeons, many, many, many voles, many rabbits still. We think wildcats will do well. So we've got 
four pairs of, of animals um, this year that could have babies. And what we need to do is get to a stage where we've got about 20 pairs breeding, sufficient to produce 40 kittens a year. When we get to the stage where we've got, we can reduce 40 kittens a year, then we can do it. But there's, 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 there's a bit of inertia and wider nature conservation thinking with regard to this animal at the moment, and, and that has to be addressed. We have a breeding colony of white storks, um, which are a medieval bird that we, which we destroyed in the past. We destroyed the wetlands, we destroyed the birds. So like the Nebcastle estate, we would like to get to the stage fairly rapidly where we have sufficient young white storks to enable us to release them. And at the moment, um, in a large aviary outside here, I think there are five or six females sitting on eggs. And within the next week and a half, they should start to hatch. We also have black storks here, which are another lost species, and we'd like to do the same with them, although they, though they are not as easy a bird to work with as the whites. We breed harvest mice, which are a tiny, tiny wee mouse with a prehensile tail. Um, it's the only British mammal to have a prehensile tail, which has sensory receptors on its hands and feet, which can swim very well, which is a reed bed mouse, and which is just this wee delightful thing. So that if you're going to talk to farmers about restoring hedgerows or not flailing or whatever else, you can take some of these wee things if they're in agreement and say, well, why don't we put some of these back? And and I've seen, you know, old and pretty grim, uh, you know, people who, you, you know, uh, you wouldn't have thought they'd have expressed a lot of emotion about anything, get quite worked up about releasing these tiny mice. We're also breeding glowworms, which are this little insect. The, the females of the beetles have... Um, um, a phosphorescence attraction for males. So at night, they used to line the country roads and children used to go to sleep at night in their bedrooms with one in a jam jar glowing. And they've all but glowed out in Britain. I mean, the, the, the mechanical flailing of the hedges, the ones that you look at and you think, well, that's neat, and the verges, and that's neat too. Aye, it's neat. But what it does is it just cuts out all the tussocks and coarse vegetation that these tiny insects need. So we have steadily turned out their lights over the course of the last century. And that's no good. Um, we also breed water voles, thousands of them, for reintroduction projects from the south of England to the north. And um, yeah, that and, and we're, we're involved with moving quite a lot of Eurasian beavers um, out into to, to new beaver habitats in England as well. So that's what we're actively involved with at the moment. Well, I can't imagine a better summer trip than coming to see your rewilding project and all these amazing animals that you're you're breeding. They all sound really fascinating and very cute. So I want to remind our listeners uh, that Derek's books, his first book, Bringing Back the Beaver, and his latest book, Birds, Beasts, and Bedlam, are both available at booksellers everywhere. Derek, thanks so much for coming on to Inquiring Minds. No problem. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Where, you know, it's very inspiring. So yeah, so so good luck to you, and I look forward to visiting your farm at some point. I look forward to showing you around. Thank you very much. So that's it for another episode. I can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear from someone who simply doesn't wait and just does what he thinks is right. I know that's not always the solution. I know there are a lot of things that we need to consider in our society. I know he's probably going to anger a lot of ecologists who worry about the unintended consequences of what he's doing. And yet, I'm rooting for him. And I really do hope that a lot of you also will take him up on his offer to go and check out his farm, maybe stay a couple nights and experience what it's like to bring the UK back to the wild. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, 
consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle, without whom this podcast would not have been able to continue for so long. This episode was edited by Daniel Link, and Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.